You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you today. Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, it's going to be really good for you to have a Bible on your lap where you can uh, look at that. And so if you need to share with the guy beside you, um, grab one under your seat, whatever you need to do to to get one um, would be a good thing for you. So Mark chapter 2, verse 18 is where we're going to be. Um, okay, so if you're new to Stonegate, uh, our normal way of preaching is through books of the Bible. So our normal kind of diet of preaching is we start in Mark and we go through verse by verse until we finish with Mark and then we go on to the next one. It's our normal diet. And, and the reason that that's our normal way of preaching is because it forces us to preach all of what the Bible says, not just what we'd like. Yeah, you know, like those parts of the Bible that we just really enjoy reading and thinking about. It, it forces us to preach all of those things. So it, it forces me periodically into passages that uh, sometimes I don't like, and, and it, it makes me preach them. I, you know, if, if you were just to put a list of uh, 50 passages, you know, up on the board that we could potentially preach through this morning, this would not be at the top of the list. I just want to tell you that. It would not be at the top of the list. And, uh, and I almost like there's a little bit of a drum roll coming with this. Like, what are we preaching on? We're preaching on fasting. That's what we're preaching on this morning, right? And so it's, it's probably not the top of the list, but by the grace of God and the providence of God, I think there's something really good in here that I am so thankful that God has us in this text talking about something as weird and in our culture as abnormal as fasting is. So with that said, uh, let me jump in. Uh, And let me start by saying this. Throughout the course and the history of God's people, so this is all the way back into the Old Testament people of God, all the way into the New Testament church. In in that, like if you take the panoramic view of the people of God, fasting has had a privileged place among the people of God. Now, I I want you to be aware of this because you need to know this about the culture that you're caught up in. It's in our 21st century culture that has mainly lost that, to the neglected that, this whole thing called fasting. Okay, let me give you these words from a guy named Richard Foster. He wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. I don't endorse it all, but his chapter on fasting in this book is incredible. It's it's very good. And, And listen to what he says about fasting. He says it this way, it'll be on the screen. In a culture where the landscape is dotted with shrines to the golden arches, yes and amen, they are, And an assortment of pizza temples, that hits a little closer to home for me, fasting seems out of place, out of step with the times. In fact, fasting has been in general disrepute both in and outside the church for many years now. For example, listen to this. In my research, he's saying, I could not find a single book published on the subject of Christian fasting from 1861 to 1954, a period of nearly 100 years. And I'll guarantee you any books that have been published on fasting over the last 25 to 50 years have not been your bestsellers. Guarantee you. Chances are, so, so I know this about our crowd this morning. Chances are, if you've grown up in and around the church, there is a great chance that you have never heard a sermon on fasting. Chances are that that's probably never happened. It was interesting. I was in a room full of pastors here a few weeks ago, and uh, someone asked the question, is fasting a regular part of your life? And every pastor in the room said no to that question. Like it was almost like a deer in the headlights. I can't believe he just asked that, and I don't have a decent answer for that. I, so I, I'm just assuming that's where we are. Just ask yourself, like, 
when is the last time I fasted? Or maybe this would even be a better way to, to pose the question. Is fasting a normal pattern in my life? And I'm just assuming for almost all of us in the room that it's not. And I want you to be aware that there's some cultural things that kind of weigh into that and play into that. That the culture forms like these glasses over our eyes that make some things really big and some things really dim and small. And like one of the things that the culture has done for you and I, so one of the reasons I probably wouldn't have picked this passage to preach, one of the things it's done for us, culture forming these glasses, has made this idea of fasting really small to us. Okay, so I want you to be aware of that going into it. Now, here's why these questions about fasting, like is fasting a normal part of your life, a normal practice in your life? Here's why this is so important. You know, now this is going to maybe even sound like an overstatement to you when I first say it, but, but hang with me. The reason it's so important for you to look at your own life and fasting, is fasting in your life, out of your life? Like how does fasting work in your life? The, the reason that's so important is because fasting is a, okay, now I'm not saying it's the, but I'm saying it's a distinguishing mark of a person who is longing for Jesus. That fasting is a distinguishing mark of a person whose heart is longing for Jesus. Now, hang in there. If you think it's an overstatement, maybe even legalistic, hang in there with me. And I think you're going to see that I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that. All right. So it's, it's a distinguishing mark of a heart that is yearning and longing and wanting more of Jesus. Okay, with that said, Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Verse 18 says this, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. You might underline that word, fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? There it is again. But your disciples do not fast. There it is again, three times. So so let's just start with explaining that word. Like what is fasting? Fasting explained. It it, it occurs three times in verse 18. So we probably need to know what that word is, what the Bible's talking about when it says fasting. So I'm going to put a definition up on the screen for you, just generally to kind of form a framework around when you, when you hear the word fasting, generally what the Bible is talking about. Here's the way you might define it. It's the voluntary abstinence from some physical need. And normally that would be food. Normally some physical need for spiritual purposes. So it's, it, let me just make this clear. It's normally food in the Bible. Like almost all, every time you see fasting mentioned in the Bible, it's connected to food. It would be, or it would mean that, that for a prolonged period of time, you go on a water diet. Like you have no food. It's just water for X amount of time. Now, let me just back up and say sometimes, and I, I think it would be appropriate to think of fasting in, in a little more of a, like a broad terms than that, that I think you could think of it in terms of giving up anything that is meaningful and valuable to you for spiritual purposes. So I think you can think of it in a broad perspective as well. That's the, the intent and kind of the spirit behind this word fasting. But, but I want you to see that narrowly speaking in the Bible, it is generally, it, you know, kind of most often means that you are going without food for a prolonged period of time. And that could be one meal, one night. That could be one day. That could be three days, five days, seven days, 14 days, 21 days, up to 40 days in the Bible. All of those different time spans without food, just water for, for that time. So it's abstaining from some physical need that you have for, for some spiritual purpose that you're going after. Okay, this is fasting. Now let me just kind of work through the, the old, you know, kind of the context, kind of the lead up to this passage. Like we said before, fasting was, was, has been a part of, of the people of God from very early on in the scriptures. There's one place in the Old Testament that actually commands fasting. 
Okay, that it mandates it. This is Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. So in Leviticus 16, what you have happening, it's the, the one day a year where the people of God would make a sacrifice for their sin. So it's, it's that day of the year, that once, uh, 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 you know, once a year day, sacrifice of sin is being made. And they're commanded to, to fast on that day. Now here is what fasting is expressing for the people of God on the Day of Atonement, when they're making atonement for their sin. It's, it's expressing on one, on one side a brokenness over their sin. They are mourning over their sin. Like fasting, the physical expression of fasting is showing you the posture of their heart toward their sin. So on one side, it's brokenness of their sin. And on the other side, it's belief and longing for the redemption that God had promised. So you've got brokenness on one side and belief on the other that are motivating that, that um, fasting. So you, you got brokenness for our sin. The, the weight of our sin, the darkness of our sin. And you've also got this longing and belief that God has said and promised that he will one day send a deliverer, a redeemer, a rescuer who will forever make payment for our sin. So it's, it's interesting, even in the first kind of, when you think of the origins of fasting in the Bible, you know, Leviticus 16, even when you go there, there is this longing within fasting for the redemption that Jesus offers. And so now you just start tracing this forward among the Old Testament people. And uh, you get several fasts that were added to that in Zechariah. And then you go all the way up to New Testament times. And by the time you get to the New Testament, you've got the Pharisees, who are the most influential religious kind of group of the day. You've got the Pharisees who are fasting, and, and they're fasting twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. So, so I just want you to see that this was a normal pattern for the people of Israel. So it's normal among the Pharisees. It says that they're, they're, the Pharisees' disciples, they're fasting. John's disciples, they're fasting. Everyone is fasting. Devout Jews fasted. It was a normal part of just their, their piety, their, their approach to God. They were a fasting people. And now they're looking at Jesus and they're asking this question. Everyone else is fasting, so why aren't your people doing it? What's wrong with them? So that's the question that is driving this test. Why aren't, why aren't your people fasting when everyone else is? And Jesus is going to give one answer. He gives two answers. One comes in verse 19. So here's the first part of the answer. And Jesus said to them in verse 19, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So here's his first answer to the question, like why aren't, my, my disciples fasting, here's the, the answer. There's a wedding going on. That, that's why they're not. And so maybe you could think of it like this. Within this, this statement in verse 19, Jesus is saying, hey, I don't know if you're aware of this or not. Like the, the siren should be going off in your mind. Like I am the, the, the promised groom. Like I, I am the groom. Like, you know, in the Old Testament, like when the, the God is compared to the, to the groom, and you're compared, the people of Israel compared to the bride, who is most often, if you read Hosea, most often prostituting herself in idolatry. But, but, but I, I am the groom, the people of Israel, the bride. I, I don't know if you've, you're aware of this or not, but, but like I am that groom. Like I am Yahweh God who has come to redeem and save. Like I am what you have been waiting for. Like that, that Messiah, that Redeemer, that Rescuer, that the people of Israel that you have been waiting for for thousands of years, he's here and you're looking at him. Right? This is what he's saying here. It's a, it's kind of a, a veiled claim at deity. He, he's saying, listen, I am the one you've been waiting for. I am God in the flesh, your redeemer and rescuer. And he's saying that, that it's a wedding, that the groom has come for the bride, you. And so if you want to know the reason that my disciples aren't fasting is because it's, it's a wedding, not a funeral. Like, like fasting was attached to mourning. 
to the ache of the soul. Like we've lost something and we want it back. Fasting is attached to that. And he's saying this is not a funeral. This is wedding. People don't mourn at weddings. Like the only tears at weddings are tears of joy. Are, are we there? So saying this is a wedding. That's why my people aren't fasting. I'm here with them. Why would they be fasting? Like the one that can satisfy their soul is here. They, they don't need to fast. So this is a response. There is a wedding happening. The groom has come. And this is the time to celebrate, not to mourn. This is what he's saying here. This is one of the reasons. I love what John Piper in his book, A Hunger for God, probably the best book I've read on fasting. I would recommend it. You should have it on your bookshelf and one of these days get to it. Here's how he says it. He says, this is, this is stunning. Like this announcement, that there's a wedding going on. Like the groom is here. It's time to celebrate. He says, this is stunning and so glorious and so unexpected in this form that Jesus said, you simply cannot fast now in this situation. You cannot fast while the wedding is going on. That's impossible. My, my disciples, there is no way they could be fasting right now. It is too happy and too spectacularly exhilarating. Fasting is for times of yearning and aching and longing. But the bridegroom of Israel is here after thousands of years of dreaming and longing and hoping and waiting. He is here and that's why his disciples aren't fasting. It's wedding day. Now he's also in verse 20 going to give us another reason. Okay, now, and, and in verse 20, he is going to walk us into the reason for fasting. Like fasting and its reason. And, and he's going to give us in verse 20 the primary reason of fasting. Now, before we get to verse 20 and deal with verse 20, I, I want to just take a, a quick segue. And I want to just walk you into some of the other reasons for fasting. This is not going to be a verse 20 reason, like the reason for fasting. But this is some of the reasons for fasting. Like we just widen out from this passage, kind of taking a little more of the Bible. I just want to whet your appetite for some of the reasons of fasting. And there are a lot of them. In one book I read, it, it listed like 15 to 20 reasons why we would be a fasting people. Things like a repentance of sin that, that is cause for fasting. Things like to strengthen and intensify prayer. Things like wanting direction or protection. Things like fighting temptation. Remember what Matt or what Mark or I'm sorry, what Jesus did in Matthew chapter four before he went out uh, to deal with Satan in the wilderness? He fasted. You remember that? To, to fight against temptation. So all of those would be some reasons for fasting. Let me just give you three quick reasons for fasting. Three reasons. Number one, it shows us what controls us. Fasting shows us what controls us. So here's how Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline, that chapter on fasting, this is how he says it. More than any other single discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside of us with food and other good things. Let me hear that. We cover up what's inside of us, like the, the aches, the darkness, the, the, the heart issues. We cover those things up with food and other good things. But in fasting, these things surface. Here's what he's saying. We all are self-medicators. Do you know that about yourself? That there are deep aches and rumblings in your heart and there is darkness in your heart that you and me, we all, we all cover those up. We medicate those things with, with the good things that God gives us. Some of us with bad things. But, but we are all, this is, we're, no one in this room is exempt from self-medication. We all do it. And what fasting shows you is what you look to and run to to medicate yourself 
and what on a heart level you are medicating. It's showing you both of those things. One of the ways I talk about fasting is it removes like the outer covering of your life. To where now all the little things that are inside of you bubble up to the surface so much uh, quicker. So, So you just go a day without food and watch how much more angry and how much more impatient you are. You just watch it. This is, this is what it's showing you. Now, he goes on to say this. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. David said, I humbled my soul with fasting. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear. If they are within us, they will surface during fasting. At first, we will rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger. Then we will know that we are angry because the spirit of anger is within us. That it's an in us issue, not because of this thing issue. We can rejoice in this knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ. So it shows us what controls us. Here's the second reason. It reminds us that we are sustained by God and not food. It reminds us of of a passage like Matthew 4, 4, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It reminds you of that. It it pushes us away from self-reliance and toward God-reliance. See, fasting is not primarily about you going without food. It is about you feasting on God and all that he promises to be for you in Jesus. It's what fasting is primarily about. It's, it's not, fasting is primarily feasting. I think that would be a good way for you to think about it. It is primarily feasting on all that God has promised to be for you in Jesus. That's fasting. Like, it, like it, it's walking you into and exposing you to all that God has promised to be for you. Do you remember that scene in John 4 where the disciples had brought back food to Jesus and they just knew he was going to be starving to death? And he looks at them and says, you know, I'm, I'm really not hungry. I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they're like, Jesus, where are you hiding the cheeseburgers? Where, where are those things, right? And, and he goes on to say, verse 34 in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That fasting is feasting. He's saying, listen, I am just fine without this food because I'm feasting on something else, namely God, all that he promises me for me in Jesus, what he has sent me to do and accomplish, I'm feasting on that. So, so it just reorients us around that we are sustained primarily by God, not by food. That we're, like this is rock solid reality that God is our sustainer, not, not food. God, God is that. And it reminds us of that. Number three is it opens our spiritual ears. Throughout the history of the church, fasting has been one of the ways that the people of God have tried to hear clearly from God. It has a way of opening our spiritual ears to hear from God. So I just want to encourage you with this. This is just free encouragement. That uh, anytime you have a big decision in front of you, like that actually alters life and things and family, just alters things. Like you need to make the right decision. I think we would be foolish not to involve prayer and fasting in that decision. This is one of the ways throughout the course of of God's people that we have tried to hear clearly from God. So Donald Whitney, in his book on spiritual disciplines, in his chapter of fasting, he says it like this, just kind of summarizing some reasons for fasting. He says it this way. One of the ways the Holy Spirit prompts us to fast is through a need in our life. So if you have a need in your life right now, that's a prompting of the Spirit to fast. That's a reason to fast. If you need stronger prayer about a matter, that's an invitation from the Lord to fast. If you need God's guidance in, a, in an issue in your life, that's encouragement to fast. If you need deliverance or protection, that's a time to fast. 
Anytime you have a need or a want or a longing or an ache, that is a moment where the Spirit of God is saying, why don't you get before me and fast and let's do this. Right? This is, they're all opportunities. I just want to encourage you to take those opportunities to, to fast. Now, okay, I want to, now let's jump into verse 20. Mark 2, verse 20. And, and Jesus is about to walk us into the reason for fasting. Like the reason, the main reason of, of why we would fast. So let me just reframe where we are. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. The question was asked, everyone else is fasting. Why aren't your disciples? What's wrong with y'all? Jesus' response in verse 19. It's a wedding. This is, this is a wedding time, not a funeral. So, so why would my people be fasting when, when we're at the wedding? Okay, now he is going to walk us in, verse 20, to like the reason, the essence of fasting. Here we go, verse 20. The days will come, verse 20, when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Talking about his disciples. He's the groom, his disciples, the bride's about to be taken away from, from them. Or the groom's about to be taken away from them, the disciples. So, so he's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension. That there's about to be a day where, where Jesus is no longer going to be physically walking with his disciples. That day is coming for his disciples. When Jesus, the, the groom, is no longer going to be there. Where the wedding is going to be kind of broken up for the meantime. That, that day is coming. And when that day comes. Okay, so, so in that day, when the, the bridegroom is taken away. And then they will fast in that day. So, so we've got a wedding going on now that the groom is here. With the bride, they're, they're not fasting. Celebration is happening. But there is a day quickly approaching on the cross. Jesus dies, resurrects, goes to heaven. There is that day that's quickly approaching where the groom will no longer be with, with the bride. And in that day, his disciples, in that day, when Jesus is no longer physically there with them, then you can count on this, he's saying, my disciples will be a fasting people. Okay, now I, I want you to see, I want you to pay close attention here to what fasting is connected to. So, so even more than this being a sermon on fasting, it, it's what fasting is connected to here. That Jesus in verse 20 is connecting Christian fasting to our longing for God. So, so see this. He's saying this in verse 20. That Christian fasting is an expression of a deep heart longing for the groom, Jesus, to return. That that's why the disciples would be fasting. That there's going to be a day when the groom leaves. And in that day, they are going to be so lovesick for that groom to come back. That they are going to be fasting. Amen. That their heart is going to have such an ache in it. That they can't help but fast. See, th this is what fasting is connected to. Fasting, Christian fasting is connected to a heart that is longing for the return of Jesus the groom. I love how one author says it. He says, fasting is a physical expression of a heart hunger for the coming of Jesus. That's what fasting is. So, so what is fasting? Why do we fast? We fast because we had a groom that was with us, Jesus. 33 years, three-year ministry. Died on a cross. Buried in a tomb. Rose from the dead. Ascended to heaven. And that groom is no longer with us. He, he was there. He was with us physically, but then he's no longer there. And we fast because we as Christian people have a deep hunger in our heart to be reunited with the groom. See, fasting is a heart expression of that hunger that we want Jesus back, that we want him to come back for his bride, that we want to be with him. See, that's what fasting is about. That's the reason that we fast is it's an expression of a heart hunger and a longing that we want 
King Jesus, Savior Jesus, Jesus the groom back with us. It's that long. Now, what's interesting is if you start looking at the early church and you start reading the book of Acts, what you're going to find is they were a fasting people. Fasting kind of courses through the veins of Acts. You see it all throughout the, the book of Acts. Why is that? It's because the cry of the early church was Jesus come back. That's why, because there was actually a longing deep in their heart for Jesus to be here. That's why they were a fasting people, because they wanted Jesus back. It's this word, Maranatha. Y'all heard of that one? Maranatha. It's this one Aramaic word that that is the couple of English words of Jesus come back. See, in Maranatha, that was the cry of the early church. There was only a few Aramaic words that made it into Greek without being changed into a Greek counterpart. One of those Aramaic words was Maranatha. One of the very few. Now, why is that? So in other words, like the Greek speakers of the New Testament. So Jesus, he spoke Aramaic, his early followers, but the the church became Greek speaking. So most of the New Testament written in Greek now, right? And so the the early Greek speakers, rather than than like taking a Greek word that's similar to to Maranatha and just translating it into Greek, they kept that Aramaic word. Why is that? I want you to see this. Why is that word preserved in Aramaic in the early church? New Testament Greek-speaking church. Why is that? It's because the constant cry of the early church was that word Maranatha. That it was so um, persistent and constant and consistent in the early church that the Greek speakers were like, we don't need to translate it. We know what it means. We've heard that so much, that cry of the heart so much, that, that that's what we say now. We don't need a Greek word for that. We'll do that. That, that word will work just fine. If you want to know what the Bible is about, what the Bible is doing, it's about planting that deep cry into a person's heart of Maranatha, Jesus, come back. Now, I want you to think about this. Turn all the way to the end of your Bible, Revelation 22. I want you to see some of the last words of your Bible. Revelation 22, it'll also be on the screen for you. 22 verse 20. Some of the last words of the Christian New Testament. Here they are. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things, talking about Jesus here, says this. Surely I'm coming soon. This is Jesus saying this to the church. I am coming soon. You need to be ready for that. You need to know that. You need to live in light of that. I am coming soon. And then listen to the church's response. Amen. Yes, we agree. And then look at what they say. Here's our word, Maranatha. Jesus, or or come, Lord Jesus. Do you see that? This is the hard cry of the early church. It pervaded everything that they were doing. When they were taking communion, they were saying Maranatha. When they were suffering and in persecution, and during that, it was Maranatha. This is the hard cry of the early church. When they were worshiping, it was Maranatha. If you want to know what the Bible is meant to lead you to, it's to that heart cry, Maranatha. If you want to know what the Bible is trying to leave you with in the last couple of words, it is that heart cry, that cry of the heart for Jesus to come back, Maranatha. This is what the Bible is supposed to pound into us. This is what the gospel produces in us, is this deep cry of the heart for, for Jesus, groom, Savior, Come back and get us. That cry. Now, now can I ask you a question? 
Is, is that cry in you? Do you see why this is a distinguishing mark of those who really long for Jesus? It's because fasting is connected to that cry of Maranatha that every Christian should have. Then in verse 21 and 22, Jesus does something interesting. He gives us two illustrations that that are intended to renew fasting, to give us a different lens to look at fasting through. So, So these two verses renew fasting, fasting renewed. Here's what they say. Look at verse 21 and 22. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new patch tears away from it, the the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So just see see the the contrast, unshrunk or, or new cloth versus old cloth, old garment. Verse 22, and no one puts new wine, okay, notice the contrast again, new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. So let me just kind of break this down as, as clearly as I can here. When he's talking about old garments and old wine skins, here's what he's talking about. That is representative of the old way of relating to God. Like the way of relating to God before Jesus arrived on the scene. And specifically, if we want to talk about fasting, the old way of fasting before Jesus arrived on the scene. So now that's old garment, that's old wineskins. Now you've got the, the unshrunk or the new cloth and the new wine. That represents, it's representative of Jesus and the new reality of our groom that's arrived. Okay, so you've got old, old wineskins, new wine. Old wineskins are the old way of relating to God, pre-Jesus. The new wine is the new reality of relating to God now that Jesus, our groom, has arrived. This is what he's saying. He's, he's making a contrast here. He is saying that there is an old way of relating to God, specifically in fasting, that, that would fast out of a longing for the Redeemer that they did not know, had not yet come. Now think about that. It, it's fasting with a forward kind of a, a point of view. That, that we're fasting, longing for this one that we have no idea who he is. That's why they missed Jesus. We don't know who he is. We don't know when he's going to come. It, it's an ambiguous longing for a future Redeemer. But that present day fasting, fasting now, stands on the reality of the finished work of Jesus. We fast now, not based on this future reality, this future redeemer that will come, but based on this past reality of a redeemer that has come. That's the difference. That it's a totally different way to approach fasting. We've got this new way to approach it that centers and squares itself solely on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that he has come. That he is a groom that has come for his bride. That he has actually lived among us. That we have seen him operate, do his magic here, right? We have seen him heal the leper. We we have seen him heal the paralytic. We, We have seen him redeem and restore, preach the gospel. We have seen him do all of those things. We have seen him save. We have personally experienced him meeting with and saving us. And now that changes everything is what Jesus is saying. That since this, this groom has come, everything is now different, including fasting. Here, here's how John Piper in his book, The Hunger of God, here's how he describes it. Old Testament, people of Israel, a forward-looking, ambiguous, that there's a redeemer coming, but I don't know him yet. That, that fasting and a fasting of now 21st century us looking back at all that Jesus has done for us, this fasting. 
He says it this way. Her, talking about the people of Israel, this would be like pre-Jesus Israel. Her, her, her hopes were based on the promises of God, just like ours are. But oh, how much more we have seen. Amen to that? Amen. How much more of the Messiah we know and can hope for. She had never seen the years of Jesus' compassion and power as we have. She had never heard the words of authority and wisdom and love as we have. She had never seen the blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the lepers cleanse and the deaf hear and the dead raised and the poor evangelized the way Jesus did. She, had never, she never saw him uh, consecrate himself in Gethsemane or crucified for our sake on Golgotha. She never heard the merciful words, today you will be with me in paradise, or the triumphant words, it is finished. She never saw him risen from the dead, triumphant over sin and death and hell, but we have. And our fasting now is based on the fact that we have now seen the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what it's based on. That new reality that we have seen Jesus, that we have met Jesus, that we know Jesus. It's based on that the central act of God is not in the future for us. The central act of God is in the past. 2,000 years ago in the past when Jesus was slaughtered on a cross for our sin. When the blood was shed. When the lamb was slain, when our sin was dealt with, when Satan was defeated, when death was overcome, that central act of God was in the past. And now we fast in light of that, right? This is the new sort of fasting that we get now. We get to fast now in light of that groom has come. We have tasted and we have seen how he can satisfy the deepest aches of our soul. And we've got this, this, this wedding that has been temporarily suspended. And we long to be reunited with that groom. Amen. It's a fasting like that. that. That's renewed fasting. So let me, let me finish by applying this uh, to us in the room. So one question and then some encouragement. Question goes like this. Is the church, and let's just personalize this to us. Is our church a fasting church? You know, I think you could say a lot about a lot of different churches. They're a studying church. They're a Bible reading church. But I'm not sure that I know of a church that I would say is a fasting church. And I want you to think about why, like, why, why wouldn't the church be known as a fasting church? Why, why wouldn't we be known for that? I just want you to consider the implication of that question. Jesus is connecting Christian fasting with the longing for his return. So, so why wouldn't the church be a fasting church? Could the answer be that we have lost our longing for the groom, Jesus, to return. Could that be? I mean, could that be the reason that we are not a fasting people? Could could that be the reason that I'm not a fasting pastor? That you're not a fasting Christian? Could, Could that be the reason that we have just lost 
our longing for the return of Jesus. That, that that cry, that heart cry of Maranatha has not bubbled up to the surface. It has been suppressed and pushed down by a million other things. Maybe you could ask yourself this question. What is the greatest thing that you could imagine? I mean, like, this is the thing that if that happened, wow. I mean, like, what is that thing, the greatest thing that you could imagine? And in response to that, like, is your response to that, that the skies splitting open, the trumpet sounding, Jesus on a white horse with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, eyes that are, are flames of fire coming back for his bride? Is that your response to that question? Or is that just like some mythological thing that some people believe out there? See, this is what fasting is connected to. Do we long for that? Is that that cry of Maranatha, is that deep in our soul bubbling up to these cries of Jesus come back? And is that expressed through fasting? Like, see, this is what Jesus is trying to show us here. That if fasting doesn't exist up here in our behavior, that Maranatha is not existing in the deepest levels of our soul. I love how one guy says it. The absence of fasting is the measure of our contentment with the absence of Christ. And just allow that just to linger over us. The absence of fasting is the measure of our contentment with the absence of Christ. I mean, so it it really is just posing the question, do we really want Jesus to come back? Are we longing for that? Or would we rather Jesus wait for just a few more years so we could get some of our stuff done here? Hey, and can we just be honest? That's a lot of us. Jesus, will you please wait until I get married? Jesus, will you please wait until I get kids? Will you please wait until I can accomplish this little thing that I've been working on? Will you please wait until that? Maybe you could think of it this way. There is no neutral ground in the universe. There is no neutral day for you. Every day, either you are growing more in your love affair with the world or in your love for Jesus. But no day is neutral. Every day is producing one of those two outcomes for both of us. And so it's really, really what fasting is showing us and testing is the deepest desires of our soul. Are we wanting Jesus to come back or are we wanting Jesus to stay up there so we can kind of finish out our love affair with the world? See, that's what it's, that's what it's showing us. See, this is the mirror that fasting is trying to hold before you and I this morning. And if you're like me, that's a bad picture that's being painted. It's it's an ugly picture that's being painted. And I hope that, that when you're hearing this this morning, that there's something kind of stirring in your soul of, it's, man, that's an ugly picture. I do not want the return of Jesus like I want to want the return of Jesus. That I want things here much more than I want things here. But, but I want to want that more. I want that more. I mean, if that's you this morning, man, I can totally, simp- I, I, I'm right there with you. Here's what I'm saying this morning to God. I want to want that 
the, the return of the groom, I want to want that more. More than anything down here, I want to want that. And, and here is the good news about fasting. The, the good news about fasting is that fasting not only is an expression of our longing for Jesus, but fasting can also increase our longing for Jesus. And just take that with you. It doesn't just express your longing for Jesus, but it can actually increase your longing for Jesus. That, that, okay, now let's just be clear here. Grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ are the only thing that can create a longing for Jesus. That, that alone. But fasting is one of those things that God has gifted us with that, that we can do to increase our longing and our want for the return, return of our groom. Fasting has the unique capacity to expand the soul, to take in more and more and more of all that God has done for us in Jesus. Fasting has that capacity to do that. I love how uh, John Piper one more time says it. He says it this way. Do you have a hunger for God? If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestations of the glory of God, it is not because we have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul, listen to this statement. Our soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. God God did not create you for this. And I invite you to turn from the doling effects of food and the dangers of idolatry and to say with some simple fast, this much, oh God, I want you. And I just want to invite you into that. That it doesn't just express your longing for God. It can actually increase your, your ache and your longing and your want of God. And the second one, just some practical encouragement on where do I start? So, so if we would like to walk into this, where, where would we even start when it comes to fasting? So let me give you, give you two and maybe encouragements here. Number one is to start slow. Start slow. What if you just started somewhere and that somewhere was slow? Like you're, you're not thinking huge at first. You're just thinking small at first. Like what if over the next month you just decided this, I'm going to take one 24 hour period, dinner to dinner. And, and I'm going to set that aside. I'm going to abstain from food. And I'm going to ask God to, to increase my longing and my want and my desire of him. I'm going to ask God to do that. Like what, what if we just started there? Just, just something simple, not, not to just... Just started somewhere, and that's a good, good, pretty good spot to start. And just asking God to say, God, will you please increase my longing for you, the groom, to come back? Will, will you please use this day to put deep in my soul a Maranatha? Will you do that, God? Now, um, j- just a couple of, of caveats here. Before you go any longer than that, can, can I just encourage you to make sure you do some reading and research? I'm going to have a couple of links. I, I post my uh, notes on, the, on all of our sermons online on the city. So you need to get on the city, get in the theology forum. You can get the notes there. And I'm going to also post some links, uh, just some decent research that you can go to, some chapters, some books that you probably need to read. For you, for you to take steps beyond, like just a one-day fast, for you to read those things as kind of the prerequisite for you moving on. You need to do your research before, before you go. So you'll know exactly what how it should play out, what you should be feeling, all those sorts of things along the way. Okay, and then uh, w- one other caveat here is for some of you, your physical condition would prohibit you from fasting. 
And I, I, I want you to feel a freedom. That's okay. Now, for most of us in the room, that's not you, right? Just to clarify. But for some, that is. And if that's you, that's okay. You can go with the spirit of fasting and be just fine. So for some of us, that, that could look like TV. One of the biggest time suckers in this room. For, for others, it could be technology. I mean, you, you just think about what, what consumes big time mental energy and, and thinking and time. What, what consumes that? And that would all be things that you could say, I'm going to fast from these things as I try to feast on God. Okay, and lastly, last little caveat here on just this idea of starting slow. Is it, it doesn't, like fasting, maybe I can say it this way. Fasting is not something you do to kind of release you from the calling of God on your life. So husbands, you don't fast from being a husband. Are we clear on that? You, you don't get off of that hook by fasting. You, you don't fast from being a parent. And, and let me just clarify this. You don't fast from sin. You, you don't fast from pornography. You repent of pornography. Are we clear on that? Okay, so you don't fast from sin. You, you repent of sin. You, you don't fast to get out of the calling of God. Fasting releases you with new power to live in the calling of God. That's what fasting is for. Okay, so, so that's number one, start slow. And here would be the second maybe encouragement for you is to start together. I just want to encourage you to start with, if you're married, to start with a husband, wife. If you're living with a group of people, start with them. How about your home group? That would be a perfect place to start is in the context of your home group. And, and I just want to clarify, that doesn't go against Matthew 6, where Jesus is going to warn not to fast for the eyes of people. That there is a difference in fasting to be seen and fasting that is seen. There's a difference in those two things. Fasting to be seen and fasting that is seen. Fasting to be seen is fasting for the eyes of people. Fasting that is seen is fasting for, for God that happens to be seen by people. Those are two different things. So, so I want to encourage you to do it together. Get in with a group of people like your home group would be perfect. And then uh, fast together. And it's going to give you opportunity to learn from one another as you go along the way. So, so start slow and start together. And I want to conclude um, with this with uh, two quick thoughts. Thought number one. I want to apply this just on a personal level. In Mark 9, 29, Jesus says something really interesting. He had just cast out some demons and his disciples came to him and said, uh, hey, we tried to cast those demons out. We couldn't do that. And you remember Jesus' response? There are some demons that can only be cast out by prayer. And then most manuscripts include this, and fasting. That there is something about fasting that releases more and more of the power of God in and through your life. So I want you to feel that and know that. There's some things in your life that God would say, I want you to have prayer and fasting, and then I'm going to give you some movement in them. And so can can I just encourage you with this? Some of you have, your marriage is in shambles right now, and you feel like you have tried it all. And can, can I just encourage you with this? How about you fasting for your marriage as an expression of, God, I can't fix this, but you can what if you did that? Some of you have been fighting just sin that has been stuck to you since all the way back that you can remember. And I kind of encourage you on this. What about not only praying about that, but fasting about that? I mean, what if we, what if we went there? Some of you have like interpersonal conflict with people that you just don't know an answer for. What, what about fasting over that? Some of you have unbelieving family members that you've been praying forever to be saved. What about not just praying, but praying and fasting over that? 
I, I just want to give you this encouragement that it has a way of unlocking the power of God in your life. And, and let me just give you this warning. We don't fast to manipulate God, to get him to like, twist his arm, to get him to do something we want to do, right? But I, I want to give you this encouragement that, that it oftentimes unlocks the power of God into your life. And, and here's the, the second thing. I want to apply this just corporately and then we're out. There's a really interesting passage in Acts 13, 1 through 3. It's going to be on the screen for you. I just want to read this with you real quick. Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius uh, of Cyrene, Manaman, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, otherwise known as Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so they were worshiping and fasting, in the middle of that, watch what happens. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which, to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So th- there was a point at the church in Antioch in Acts 13 where they needed direction from the Lord. They, they needed the Lord to lead them in what to do next. They were praying and fasting and the Lord said, boom, do this. Now, can I just tell you about one of the things that keeps me really desperate for God in my life? Is 99 out of 100 questions that we have to answer for Stonegate Church are not explicitly in the Bible. Like, I'm not going to turn to Acts chapter 14 and see, do this or don't do that. Just not in the Bible. And I think God has actually designed it that way. So we'd actually have to continually, day by day, look to him. So things like, um, when are we going to plant this church? Not going to find that in the Bible. Who are we going to plant? How many are we going to send? How much money are we going to send? We're not going to find that in the Bible. Things like, should we buy that piece of property? Should we not going to find that in the Bible? Things like, how are we going to get ready for a four-year conference center cliff that's coming down the way? We're going to have to make a move out. Of it. How, how are we going to get ready? Not going to be found in the Bible. How are we going to raise money? Not in the Bible. When do we do that? Not, not, none of those things are found in the Bible. And can I just tell you what, why, why that is? It's to keep us desperate and hungry for a present day voice and movement of God in our life. And, and what we're seeing in Acts 13 is that primarily came for them in the middle of prayer and fasting. That's when they got the response. What are we going to do? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to put hands on Barnabas and Saul and you're going to send them out to start planting churches. Now, can I tell you what's at stake in that moment for the history of the church? In that moment, what just happened? Acts 13, here's what happened. Up until Acts 13, the, the, the church had two kind of centers. Antioch was one and Jerusalem was the other. And they were both inward focused churches. The gospel was contained inside, but it never made it outside for them. There was no, what about the nations? There was no, what about people outside of our churches? And listen, the church in Jerusalem never recovered from that. But, but on this day, the church in Antioch, something happened. I, in Acts 13, when you open Acts 13, there were no New Testament churches yet. There was no church at Philippi. There was no church at Corinth. There was none of those churches. There were no letters written to those churches yet. None of that had happened yet. But Acts 13 changed all of that. There was this moment where the Spirit of God said, send Paul and Barnabas, send them there, send them now. Let's do this right now. Saul goes out. He starts planting churches. The gospel starts spreading. Within a few short years, the gospel has spread to to the entirety of the known world. And let, let me just say what's at stake. 2,000 years later, we have a church in Midlothian called Stonegate. You know where that's traced to? You want to trace that thread back far enough? You know where that's traced to? Some church planters called Paul and Barnabas. That's where it's traced to. 
All the way to this moment in Acts 13 where a church said, we're sending out some church planters. All the way to this moment in Acts 13 where they were praying and fasting and heard from the Spirit of God and obeyed. And history is forever changed. Man, we could use some of that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Let me give you just a second to allow the Spirit of God just to press in the things that would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that would be not helpful for you today. And if you're an unbeliever in the room, like you know you walked in this morning and there's never been a moment where you put your faith in Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not only good news for those who are fasting, The gospel is also good news for those who are outside of the kingdom of God. For you, the gospel is great news this morning. That the great news of the gospel is that Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died in your place on the cross. He rose from the the dead on the third day. And, And all of that made a way for you to be reconciled and made right with God. So, so that now for all those who hold up their lives to God and say, God, save me. God in his grace meets us in that moment and does just that. And so if that's you this morning and there's something stirring in your soul that you want more of this Jesus, man, can I just encourage you? All you have to do, hold up your hands to God. God, I want you. Man, if if your soul is saying that to God, God, save me. I'm trusting Jesus to be everything that I'm not. I'm trusting Jesus to to save. The great news of the gospel is that God loves to redeem right now in this moment, in this place. And for those in the room who you would say you are a Christian, can, can I just encourage you to ask the question, what does a lack of fasting, what, what is that meant to show you in your life? Like, what, what, what is the implication of that? And could it be that the implication of our lack of fasting, that the implication of that is that we have lost our longing for the return of our groom? And what would it look like for us to repent of a lost longing today? For, for us to be able to cry out to God, I don't want that like I want to want that. God, restore that want. God, put that want in me. Man, what what would that look like for you to cry out to God, asking him to meet you right in the middle of that? And God, we pray that you would do just that, that you'd meet us in the midst of not wanting what we want to want. God, will you meet us there? It's in your good name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.